Hello, and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Konst, and it is time to talk about strategy and leadership. This needs to be said. The left lacks strategic leadership. I don't think it's controversial. I think it's been indicative of the last few weeks of left infighting. We have plenty of voices, a cacophony of voices. We are amazing on Twitter, fabulous at click politics, but we don't seem to have a cohesive strategy to garner vital policy wins at this moment. This crisis that should propel these policies, not just to wide popularity, but into action. Nor do we have a unifying leader who knows how to wield power to achieve that strategy through leverage. And I don't mean a politician, an elected official. I mean a leader organizing pressure with people and negotiating with our political leaders, our allies, and those that we need to convince to win votes. We are up against one of the williest, wiliest leaders in government, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, of course. After four years of of subservience to Trump, he asserted himself this week and is trying to put the Republican Party back together for a post-Trump era. The better he succeeds, the less that we accomplish. So what is our strategy? And who are our leaders? This isn't about organizing protest as much as we want good protest. This is about managing power. Democrats are embarking on controlling at least half of the government with the White House and the House of Representatives. It will be years, possibly a generation, before we claw the Supreme Court back from radical conservative hands. And the Senate will be controlled one way or another by one or two votes after the Georgia runoffs. And we know how a few of our Democratic senators like to play both sides of the aisle. And of course, our country is in the deepest economic crisis of our lifetimes, in our parents' lifetimes. So to repeat this question, what is our strategy? Who are our leaders? Well, let's start with what we need to achieve right now. Just as Mitch McConnell is trying to unify the Republican Party, we need solidarity around our key objectives on the left and on the more global left. Watch how McConnell does his work. He is pressuring every Republican senator to let go of the fantasy that Trump was robbed of his election victory. So what is our version of unity? Well, I am trying to seize back that word from the Clintonites who, of course, put it on us when they said that unity meant that the left has to fall in line behind them. When I say unity, I mean everyone across the Democratic coalition should fall in behind the progressive policies that this country clearly needs and wants in this crisis. We need to pressure every Democrat, starting with Joe Biden, to unite around real actions to relieve the suffering prime the economy, reduce the inequity, and clean up, obviously, the greenhouse gases. We know the solutions. We just need the votes. And that's the strategy. How do you get the votes? But who can make this happen? Who among our allies has the juice to move Joe Biden and the the middle-of-the-road Democrats? For decades, the progressive movement has been stifled, erased, and figuratively and quite literally killed off. Too much is at stake right now. Tens of millions of Americans face evictions in a few weeks, as do tens of millions of small businesses, which will also be forced to shutter with debt from loans and overdue bills. 300,000 Americans have died from COVID, our grotesque response to the pandemic, and now how many more will die because they lack the health care to treat the effects of COVID or will go further into medical debt 
And I haven't even mentioned the pre-existing debts our country faces, student loan debts, housing, credit, medical debts. This is not the time to be impulsive. This is a moment for us, a crisis for the movement, frankly, in which many of us should be thinking deeply about the leverage that we have right now and how to use it and who is in a position to do so. How we can actually move the government into action, not incrementally or over a five-year rollout, but immediately before we spiral into disarray. Some want to get attention, but we need less clickbait and more strategy. Medicare for all is the great lesson of this pandemic. Believe it or not, an already incredibly popular policy, now more Americans support it. But Congress is frozen. Getting it voted down is not a win. Splitting the left is certainly not a win. Yet even if we were to pass it tomorrow in Congress, the GOP would do what they did with Obamacare, tie up the movement possibly until 2035. Yet that doesn't mean we don't build a strategic vote campaign as the National Nurses Union did with building a movement campaign to get co-signers in the Senate and in Congress. But there, there lies the secret sauce. Who are our leaders that can execute a real strategy of getting the votes for our goals? Which leaders will force lawmakers to move or at least lean in and listen and negotiate? I will tell you, they are and have always been our labor leaders. One of our biggest challenges on the left is that most of us have never been in power. We have great intentions and little experience in actually using power effectively. And I say that because we've been getting crushed for decades by neoliberals, by conservatives, by McCarthyists, by anti-unionists. Getting a few dozen progressives elected up and down the ballot over the last five years has been extraordinary, but we do not have the majority. And we probably won't have it in time for the 2021 session. We know we don't have it. And we need the votes right now, like in a couple of weeks, to prevent folks from becoming homeless, stealing food to feed their children. Now, I really admire AOC for saying that she wasn't ready to be speaker, even though, of course, it is time for both Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to go. Bye-bye. But her point was more revealing. Congress is, of course, complicated. Mastering the levers of legislation takes years and the loopholes. It's an institution with rules set and operated and controlled by those in power, a.k.a. Nancy Pelosi. And because power sees what's coming with this next generation, there is no succession plan in place that makes any sense. Here is AOC on the podcast, Intercepted. Let's play that podcast clip real quick. Isn't this grounds, though, to take a stand and say, no, I'm sorry, Nancy Pelosi should not be the speaker and Chuck Schumer should not be the leader? Well, you know, I do think that we need new leadership in the Democratic Party. I think one of the things that I have struggled with, I think that a lot of people struggle with, is the internal dynamics of the House has made it such that there's very little option for succession, if you will. You know, and I think that one could just... I think it's easy for someone to say, oh, well, you know, why don't you run? But the House is extraordinarily complex and I'm not ready. (laughs) It can't be me. I know that I couldn't do that job. And so 
even conservative uh, members of the party who think Nancy Pelosi is far too liberal for them, don't necessarily have any viable alternatives, which is why whenever there's a challenge, it kind of collapses. Um, And that is, I think, the result of just many years of. So it, it would be great if a mainstream Democrat already experienced with power, for instance, was, say, radicalized by this current crisis, somebody who who would then sweep the movement's goal goals onto the table, right? Someone who has learned the system, but is now ready to fight for the major change we need. The way that RFK, Robert Kennedy, was later radicalized in life by the Vietnam War and the struggles at home in the late 60s, or even MLK's turn to socialism. You know, that's using institutional power and knowledge for good, but, but no one is doing that. And of course, we can't sit around hoping that that leader will emerge. But there is one part of the left that has the experience and the know-how that we need right now. Labor, labor, labor. Labor can lead our strategy of pressuring Democrats from Joe Biden on down to what needs to be done right now. And of course we need and we must support the progressive labor leaders in bringing the rest of the labor movement around to what needs to be done. We start with our allies in labor to pressure other labor leaders who've been sitting on their hands, frankly. And simultaneously, our allies in labor also pressure our allies in Congress and those on the fence and then directly to the most establishment Democrats, because here is a secret. The establishment can ignore groups. They can ignore Twitter. They can ignore progressive members of Congress, but they cannot ignore labor. Even the lawmakers who openly take it on, like Andrew Cuomo or Rahm Emanuel, labor is the leverage. They need labor. But labor is also the star of this moment. How many of our teachers, nurses, flight attendants, postal workers, doormen and women, transportation workers and domestic workers have been on the front lines for us during this crisis? How many of our frontline labor workers showed up and voted for Joe Biden and organized for Joe Biden? Build Back Better is not just a slogan, but Biden won't do anything. Congress will not do anything as we are seeing unless real organized power results, not just behind the scenes, but publicly, that they demand results. So we can be on the outside and amplify, and that's where our clicks are helpful. But labor has a seat at the table and they have leverage and they can negotiate. Remember Flight Attendants Union President Sarah Nelson looking uh, the big airlines straight in the eye and protecting her members and the companies as their businesses collapsed this year and doing what many have been able to do, making Donald Trump cave. Sarah Nelson is an example of a real leader who sees power, understands power, and who can be central to executing the strategy of bringing Biden and other Democrats around to what we need to do in solving this crisis and protecting humans, protecting homes, making sure that families have food and jobs. Labor has the ability to use this crisis of the moment as leverage and their members, workforce, as not only the face of this crisis, but the power that demands immediate relief and the power that builds the strategic campaign, strategic campaign to pass Medicare for all. Mitch McConnell will always find a way to roll us, block us, and gaslight us. And frankly, so will Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. 
But labor has and always will be the collective force that stops those in power and the rest of capital from killing us, literally killing us. We have an excellent show today. This is Fem Friday. We have Tara Hauska on to talk about Deb Holland being named as Interior uh, Secretary. And later we have Javanka Beckles and Mar- Marianella Dapril on to discuss today's news. It is a busy one. So we'll be right back with uh, Tara Hauska. Okay, 2020. Are you done yet? Please. Actually, I'm afraid of saying that because we, we don't know how bad it could get. Uh, if it's potentially, if if it's even possible to get worse. But anyways, uh, Tara Hauska is having some technical difficulties. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go a little bit off the norm. This is Fem Friday, but uh, we have one of our team members who's gonna join us, who is a reoccurring panelist, who was supposed to be on Wednesday when I was sick. What a week, guys. Thank you for sticking with us. Um, it's been a little it's been a little crazy. Oh, now I think she's joining us right now. Oh, goodness. All right. Please keep us in the loop, Dorsey, if you are checking out uh, the updates as we go. Anyways, uh, I will I will open up the conversation uh, before Tara joins us. But the, the news out, I'm sure you guys heard the news, is that Deb Holland, who's a Congress member, uh, she was elected in 2018. She is not only a Native, Native rights activist and Indigenous activist, but she herself has personally endured a lot of the injustices. And I, I know just from conversations with a lot of the folks that organized her campaign in 2018, just how financially difficult it was even for her to run for Congress. And she was just appointed uh, to Interior, to uh, run Interior Department under the Biden administration. Now, this is a bright light. I'm not going to lie. I mean, this is there are a lot of problems with Biden's uh, cabinet picks at this point. But this is a bright light, especially given the history of of colonialism in this country and how the Department of Interior was specifically uh, tasked with the worst. I mean, and I'm saying I'm, I, I want to leave the rest of this for Tara to explain personally from her experience, but they were responsible for some of the worst actions against the indigenous population of the Americas. And, you know, you can go back really from the days of Columbus pre-interior department, but uh, if you haven't read enough about Teddy Roosevelt, I call him the bro of the early 1900s. He was, he was an early bro, um, somebody who obviously grew up very wealthy and went to, was highly educated, went to Ivy League schools, and then just thought, you know, it would be really cool to go and, and go westward bound and, and uh, manifest destiny with his own weapons and just kill off Indians because that's what he thought was cool. And of course, he later rose to being the president despite his ridiculous behavior, even, even at the time was considered ridiculous behavior. Um, and, and, and somehow, you know, it's almost like bros, uh, succeed no matter what failing up. All right, let's play this quick clip of, of Deb Holland, uh, her appointment. Also been reporting on uh, Congresswoman Deb Ho- uh, Holland, who uh, is going to be named as Biden's interior secretary. And getting to this point, very interesting, uh, because, of course, Nancy Pelosi has an incredibly narrow majority in the House. And there was a push not to take any House members, not just uh, uh, Deb Holland. But in the end, this is the, the pick that the Biden team went with. They're willing to take that risk. Why? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, for several weeks, progressive activists and tribal leaders and allies and organizers have been privately and publicly pushing for Congresswoman Deb Holland to be selected as Biden's interior secretary. They've been taking that argument in private meetings directly to Biden's transition team. I've talked to folks who have been involved in those conversations. But the thing that it sounds like it came down to, Casey, is those folks were having conversations with Pelosi's team in the kind of final 24 hours before this announcement was made, really trying to to reassure her, they told me, that they could do this in a way that wouldn't totally mess up her narrow majority in the House, that wouldn't threaten her speakership, because they said that one, Deb Holland, Congresswoman Deb Holland, would stay in her seat until she's actually confirmed. So that would give her a number of months, of course, in the new Congress. And the second thing they said is that she's going to be around in her seat for longer than even Congressman Cedric Richmond or Marsha Fudge will be until their seats are filled. And of course, they told her that Congresswoman Deb Holland is from a pretty Democratic district, so there's nothing they say to worry about there. Yeah. They really had a lot of these conversations. And the final thing that these folks who talked with Pelosi's team said is they were really making the argument that Speaker Pelosi could be one of the key decision makers in really helping make history happen with this announcement. And they said that they thought that she was really receptive to that argument. Welcome to the show, Tara Hauska, who has joined us before. In the past, Tara Hauska is a tribal leader and attorney. Uh, she's an advocate uh, for indigenous rights and justice. She's a former advisor on Native Americans for the Bernie Sanders campaign. We were, I believe, on the platform. Was the platform committee together? I can't even remember now. It's been so long. Uh, and she's the co-founder of Not Your Mascots. She's written for The New York Times, The Guardian, among so many other places. Thank you so much, Tara, for joining us today. You look very warm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just got done doing a, an interview by a river outside. So by the Mississippi River, actually. By a river. Uh, uh, because we are currently fighting a multi-year tar sands project that's uh, poised to drill under it the next week. So oh that's God. why by the river. Why by the river, exactly, was- the continuous work. So, I mean, we don't have a ton of time, and I, I really thought it was so important to have you on the show because I've admired your work for so long, as you know. Um, what, from your perspective, what does this mean, having Deb Holland uh, nom- nominated as a cabinet pick? I mean, on a personal level, it, to me, what I see is uh, <laughs> the first Native American cabinet member in the existence of the United States since this country has been founded. Um, it's the first time that there's been a senior ranking person overseeing not just the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but like the entire Secretary of the Interior. Um, it's the it's the branch of the government or the, the agency that's rocks, trees, and Indians, and that includes us. So it's amazing to see um, one of our own in that spot, and particularly one of our own that has a uh, track record of protecting and defending um, Indigenous places and, and, and people. So uh, Deb has a, has a history of having an open door policy and meeting with people, but also like really understanding at a, at a, at a gut level, what it means to protect the sacred and what it means to um, stand with our land. Can you give us a little background on what interior has their role with native communities, indigenous communities in the United States has been um, through history? Uh, I mean, that's a long thing, but I would say, you know, just the I, I sort of started off and I was like, I'm going to let Tara go with this one. <laughs> yeah. The uh, best ofs. The best ofs. I mean, there's the worst ofs and the best ofs. 
Uh, we actually used to be under the Department of War, which says a lot about the relationship of the United States to this to Native people. Um, you know, and then we were transferred over to the Department of the Interior. Interior has like a long history of basically like paternalism and oversight when it comes to the governance and self-governance of indigenous peoples. Um, it's where we oftentimes end up when we're looking at either amending or imposing our own uh, governance structures. Like, so basically like what's happened is there's like many little United States that have been imposed into every single uh, federally recognized tribe across the country. Um, which has caused a whole host of issues, right? And when there are moments of like, let's do a constitutional amendment to change that process, typically interiors involved, it means that we have to get permission from the feds. They're also the folks who are overseeing like the actual management of our federal trust land, um, whether that's like Bureau of Land Management or uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs and like all these different like relationships within. And it has not always been I would say even remotely a positive relationship. Um, it's changed. I mean, I think Secretary Jewell really did kind of like a, a big step forward when it came to trying to open up lines of communication with indigenous people that hadn't really been particularly friendly before that. So, um, and then there was a huge back step in, in my assessment with uh, the, the Trump administration. Yes. And now with Deb, I mean, that's like, I don't know. It's a win for, I, I saw that there was a little ticker that said progressives. I mean, it's a win for, for progressives. It's also just a win for indigenous peoples and to have somebody yes. who so intimately understands how these things work. I, you know, at the end of the Obama administration, um, there was, there was, I mean, obviously there was, there was the Keystone XL fight and then there was the fight at Standing Rock. Uh, and so much of what we're seeing with the Biden administration is sort of a reset, not even a reset. It's, it's a picking up point from the Obama administration, um, whether or not we're actually, I don't believe that we're anywhere uh, at that point anymore. It's much, much, much worse. But this, this move in particular, I found illuminating. Um, do you think that by having Deb Holland at Interior will be able to prevent future Standing Rocks or even protect the Lakota tribe's uh, land right now, which is still, you know, being tainted, the water's being tainted. Um, I mean, do you, do, given their, uh, on one hand, I mean, oil, like you, you, right now you're protesting, right? So or you're, you're, you're calling attention to what's happening on the Mississippi River. Oil is so invested in this administration. How can you feasibly have an agenda that protects and, and represents indigenous people in this country, native people in this country, and simultaneously be taking and, and, and prop putting people into the administration who have been some of the biggest advocates and for oil and gas and recipients of their money. How can you have those two things at the same time? Uh, there's a couple of things there. One, I would say that not all Native people are 100% against oil and gas. Like, that's just simply not true. Native nations are diverse and have any different perspectives on these issues. And uh, I would also add, like, the, the Mississippi River, I'm in my people's territory. This is our pipeline fight that we're fighting to protect our own land. So this is, like, not, like, I think there's a tendency within um, mainstream society and, and movement to think that it's just the Keystone XL pipeline. It's just the Dakota Access pipeline. It's just these Lakota people that are experiencing that. That is absolutely not the case. Um, right. I'm Ojibwe and fighting for Ojibwe territory. 
There are Wet'suwet'en people that are fighting for Wet'suwet'en territory. There are all kinds of people that are over in the Pacific Northwest fighting against LNG terminals. This is not, not something that is uncommon. That said, I mean, I think, one, I was pleasantly surprised to see the Biden administration put somebody like Deb Holland into office. I think that, you know, it's it's a quite progressive choice from what I've seen out of the Biden administration as a campaign. Um, I won't say that Obama was necessary. And I worked in the White House as a law clerk in CEQ. So, like, I won't say that Obama is some, like, super progressive, left-leaning, you know, protect against climate crisis. I mean, the environment was on the chopping block all the time. And those violations that happened of human rights and of indigenous lands happened under the Obama administration of Dakota Access Pipeline. Exactly. Even after Hillary Clinton lost the election. So, like, that is very middle of the road when it comes to the environment. And that is also what we've seen um, in terms of Biden's picks for other offices, like for the EPA and for other some of these other really critical agencies that make these decisions over expanding the tar sands in our case with line three, Enbridge's line three, or, um, you know, putting in a new mine, putting in a boundary, you know, putting in a border wall through the middle of indigenous territory, like ripping that apart. I mean, yeah, that's happening like right now. And so Southern Arizona, if folks don't know, aware of that. Yeah. I think there's just like, uh, I really hope that we see more progressive stances out of the Biden administration. That said, it seems like they're doing a pretty good job of trying to kind of like play to both sides of what's the Democrat or I guess left-leaning portion of of, uh, the electorate, which is, you know, we're going to put in these kind of like standard corporate-funded, corporate-backed people into these positions, but then we'll also balance it out with like some other folks that that are like more progressive. Like Deb is by far one of the most progressive picks out of all of them. Um, Well, do you think that she's going to be able to accomplish anything within, with, with, within the department of interior? I mean, there are so many crises, I I guess it's twofold question. Will she be able to accomplish anything and what should be at the top of her, her uh, plate right now in terms of priorities? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I kind of touched on that just a little bit. Um, I think there, you know, there's massive oversight that specifically the Department of the Interior has when it comes to Indian Affairs. And so, like, I'm very hopeful that there is a uh, uh, a policy stance that's reflected in the regulations and in the engagement with, with Native nations that reflects sovereignty, that, like, is essentially delegating the authority to tribal nations that they should have had in the first place. So I'm hopeful that the Interior not only pulls themselves out, but also pulls out other agencies, like starts pushing specifically like HHS and some of these other um, agencies that have been really, really horrendous towards Native nations and towards Native sovereignty for a very long time um, in the right direction. I hope that consultation becomes free prior and informed consent, um, that that's the standard that's put forward. And maybe we start seeing that in some of these like, uh, you know, executive orders and, um, general overall agency stances that need to happen. I think when it comes to specifically like infrastructure projects, like the one I'm fighting, there are things that interior can definitely do, you know, like we're all like, I mean, and there's a, there's a huge scramble, right. To like figure out how exactly do we stop Dakota access pipeline expansion? How do we stop Keystone XL? How do we stop line three? How do we do these things? You know, there's, 
an intersection of 404 cro water crossing permits in the Clean Water Act. There's, you know, the, the Army Corps EIS review process. There is interiors, you know, tacit maybe involvement through like either Bureau of Land Management or <coughs> some of the BIA leases that have to be um, either consulted or like there's like certain certain requirements when it comes to like traditional properties cultural resources that are triggered by NEPA I mean there's there's intersections between all these agencies and I think that and I hope that um, Representative Holland will do everything she can to flex her agency to, to reflect more adequately the rights of the, the the rights holders I mean in this project I'm fighting I mean you got multiple native nations who have said no clearly and absolutely and are suing the state suing the company suing you know what i mean like that's that's what's happening same thing with code access pipeline same thing with keystone xl so like it would be really amazing to see um a strong ally in that role tara thank you so much this was i know uh we were sort of catching you at a an important moment but uh it was very important to have your voice in this conversation at this historic time so thank you for joining us tara hauska is there anything that you would like um that folks can do to help you right now oh yeah sure um the interview i came from the, the reason why i'm late is because i was actually interviewing a tree sitter who was just removed from their tree um blocking the drill pad construction at the the mississippi river if folks want to learn more about that fight please visit stopline3.org um please get involved and please make this an issue for the Biden administration. I mean, I'm still meeting with lots of the transitional teams into the other agencies, um, but we need this to become a national issue. This is one of three tar sands lines. It could literally end. It could literally end the tar sands as we know it. Um, I mean, they, they have everything riding on this, you know, it's, it's, it's the end of an industry that, that needs to go. Absolutely. It's the dirtiest fossil fuel in the world. We'll put the, we just put it up on screen, but we'll put it in the uh, information section as well um, on both the podcast and the YouTube page. Tara Hauska, thank you very much. Good luck. Stay safe. Be well. Stay warm. Much Take luck. good care. Take care. All right. We'll be right back with our panel for a quick uh, roundup of today's crazy news. Be right back. the Nomi Key Show. I love Femme Fridays uh, because I often get to see friends and allies that I, I like to see out there regularly, like Javanka Beckles, who last time we spoke was running for office and just got elected as AC Transit Director for Ward 1. Congratulations, Javanka. Uh, what do I officially call you? Direct Transit Director? <laughs> yeah, Director Beckles. Director but Beckles. You are Nomi Key. <laughs> My buddy, my fam, definitely Javanka as always. All right. Well, I'll say Director Beckles because I like it. It feels good. Love when we have wins, well-earned wins. And for the first time, Marianella Dupriel, I hope I'm saying your name uh, properly. She is the D a DSA National Political Committee member. Uh, very excited. She has, uh, her work has appeared in Jacobin, of course, the Architects newspaper in these times, Common Edge, among many others. Uh, thank you for, for joining us on our Fun Fat Friday panel. Yeah, time. thanks for having me. All right, so we've got a bunch of stuff to cover today. Um, <laughs> the big one is this story about AOC's position in Congress. This comes after a week of infighting, I hope primarily online, about you know what the progressive 
members of Congress can do when it comes to Medicare for all. And, and the pushback was targeted at AOC. And I, I personally think that it was targeted, not the way that you actually move your lawmakers to, to, to push anything forward, but I think it was more harassment, my personal take, but um, whether or not that had anything to do with this or not, AOC was not given the position that we all hope for. And somebody who doesn't actually get along with Nancy Pelosi was given that position, Representative Rice. Let's put that on screen real quick if we have a clip of it. Okay, so uh, there's this tweet from Alex Salmon. Crushed AOC 49 to 13 in favor of Kathleen Rice, a backbench right-winger, Democrat obviously, who is a known enemy of Pelosi. Meanwhile, the other progressive priority uh, of ENC, Sylvia uh, Garcia, was left off the slate without even getting to a vote. Guys, are we just playing this game wrong? Like, <laughs> I, I feel like this is a great, a, a, a great education for us right now as a movement in terms of strategy and, and, and pushing power in the right direction. And I see uh, Director Beckles. <laughs> Would you like to take it? Yeah, you know what? I, I it, when I when I uh, saw the news about this, it really uh, I was enraged. I was enraged because I'm so tired. I'm so tired of these people um, showing such disdain for progressives, for revolutionaries, and I, I actually for people who are advocates for the working class. I'm I'm so tired of it. Uh, but I think that the fact that it made the news, it's making the news, shows that people are finally paying attention to what's going on and these appointments and how important. Uh, they are because um, I, I guess I, I understand that a lot of these representatives, um, they came out forcefully against her, like, <laughs> like, like no one's really ever seen the and 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 these folks, the same folks that voted uh, for this woman and against AOC, um, I understand they have a lot of they have close ties um, to you know big oil, and so it you know I always say follow the money. Yes. All of these votes, you follow the money, you will see uh, why it is, where they're coming from, um, why it is that they would shun, you know, this fighter, this this person, this woman um, who who is fighting for the working class, fighting to save the planet. Um, I think it's despicable that um, when you follow the money, the reason why they do these things, you know, is to appease their corporate donors, right? And so I think it's despicable. It's a way that they raise money. Um, and that's why I think that it's so important. That's why it's important that we elect people like, uh, more people like her, more people like Nina Turner, who's running. I'm so pumped because, you know, that's why we, we have to flip the Congress um, and we have to have and flip the Senate um, so that we can have more not just progressive, you know, because that's a word that's thrown around so much, but I want to use the word responsive, right? We have to have more people who are going to be responsive um, to the, you know, to the people, to we, the people, um, and not responsive like the centrist, you know, or, or um, centrist, moderates, corporate Dems um, who are fighting so hard um, for the corporate donors, and and I'm I'm so sick of it. But I think that it's going to energize us even more, you know, in these elections, like the election that's coming up for uh, for Nina Turner in Ohio. Um, Marianella, I mean, this is it, it's so interesting that uh, Director Beckles just said <laughs> I have to get used to that. Javanka uh, said <laughs> to follow the money because this is these committee positions. I think a lot of folks don't may not be aware. They're also fundraising mechanisms. So they do put industry insiders in these committee positions because they help this, this Democratic Party industrial complex in which 
even the progressives who don't want to be part of that are kind of forced to comply because they want to have a spot on a good committee. They want to be able to be called on to say something in regards to energy policy. Um, DSA is doing such great work in terms of, of, on the electoral side, in terms of whether it's the local level, like in the position uh, with Javanka Beckles, Director Beckles, or the national level, and kind of taking over these, these positions. But I guess my, my only hesitation is, are we doing it fast enough? Are we playing the game as well as we could be playing, given this crisis that we're facing? Yeah, you know, I think it's a good question. When I was reading about the appointment, Frank, I'm going to be honest with you. I was like, okay, this is just like palace intrigue, right? Because like, meanwhile, we have millions of people out here who are losing their jobs, who have lost their jobs, who are without health care, who are starving. And, and like, frankly, you know, an appointment like this would not have materially impacted their lives um, in any direct way. I think your question is great, right? Because I think it gets to this this question of, I was thinking earlier today about AFC has said it herself, right? Like if in any other country, she and Joe Biden would not be in the same party. And when she says that, what I take, what I take to, that to mean is that they just have markedly different interests. And that's what we're seeing here too, right? So like, right, um, Kathleen Rice, I thought it was really funny that she was like said to be an enemy of Nancy Pelosi. No, she's not. She's not an enemy of Nancy Pelosi. They have the exact same interests. They care about the same thing. They want to protect their little corporate uh, donors. They want to like get their little grubby, grubby little hands on that money. Like that's what they care about. AOC, and more importantly, the working class base that AOC represents, that is Nancy Pelosi's real enemy. That is the real enemy, frankly, of most corporate Democrats. And that's why you know, they're shutting AOC out of these positions. And I think that's going to happen. Um, you know, that's going to continue to happen, I think. Um, so for me, it is a question, okay, are we doing this fast enough? Absolutely. I would love to have like, you know, dozens more AOCs everywhere. Um, but I think also the question of like, are we building independent power for the working class as we're doing this? Because as we know, as we're seeing time and time and time again, the Democrats are just not ever going to represent the interests of the working class in any substantial way. So we need to build power for ourselves. Absolutely. Um, on that note, we have a clip of AOC and, and Bernie Sanders talking um, specifically about this power and, and, and how, uh, I mean, is, is a negotiation of these bills, which are so livelihoods right now of mil- tens of millions, possibly even more Americans. We don't even know the numbers yet as we eke into this crisis and the Biden administration, maybe because I don't even know the numbers yet, is just seems to be completely oblivious um, and more distracted by, uh, by the donors and the patronage and, and all of the, the favors that they have. So let's play that clip really quick. You have it? Oh, sorry, it's just Bernie. Excuse me, I thought it was with AOC as well. Democrats willing to compromise because they're banking on more relief next year after President-elect Joe Biden takes office. But some progressive Democrats are restless. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez telling The Intercept, it's time for fresh faces. I do think that we need new leadership in the Democratic Party. Asked about her comments, progressive Senator Bernie Sanders, who ran against Biden in the primary, said Democratic leaders gave up too much to cut the relief deal. If you're asking me, do I think that this bill was well negotiated? I don't. There should have been a lot more money in it than there currently is. I mean, case in point right here, uh, Director Beckles, 
I love Bernie. I love Bernie. I, cause you know, that, that, that's why they had to stop that brother, you know, because, you know, as, as, as Nina Turner said, you know, they don't want truth, truth sayers, you know, they want people who are just going to be bound down and, and, and just spewing lies and or, and, or just keeping quiet. So I love that Bernie, you know, speaks the truth of power every single time. He's not afraid. And, you know, and that's, that's why, you know, I, I love, I like, I love the work that uh, DSA nationwide locals are, are doing because they also are truth tellers. Um, you know, this is a movement for the people, uh, and, and so that's, that's why she has to be stopped as well, you know, because she's a truth teller. Right. And it's, it's, it's so unfortunate that people, uh, lots of people, there are many of us who do not, but there's so many people who seem to embrace lies, um, you know, more than, than they want to embrace uh, the truth of, of what's really going on. But, but I, I'm going to say it, I, I just, I can't stand you know, centrist. It's just, it's, they're <laughs> killing us. They are killing the literally planet. Killing us. And literally. they have not, literally, and they, and we will get nothing from them. So um, that's why I'm a part, I'm a part of this movement because I feel like, you know what, we have to come out. We have to be radical um, because being in the center, being moderate and bowing down the corporate interests mm -hmm. is literally, as you said, Nomiki, is killing us and it's killing the planet. So I'm tired of it. And I, and I'm, I welcome this new awakening of folks who are understanding that we get nothing from them. The only people that get something from centrist, you know, corporate Democrats are, are corporations who are, you know, controlling those strings. And the stronger these corporations have become over the years um, and, and the more their monopolies, it's like the centrists have, I mean, we, we all know that the spectrum that move, they're moving further and further right. But, you know, I've been looking back into like the, the Nixonian era and, and reading a little bit more back, you know, about Johnson's in light of this moment. And it, even the most the conservative, I mean, first off, the Democratic Party used to actually fight Republicans and they'd be able to call them out. But yeah. also Nixon, of course, was is nowhere near, forget the Republican Party, the Democratic Party of today. Right. So, and, 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 and even if Johnson wasn't perfect, which he definitely wasn't, he at least heard what was happening and responded to the crises of the moment. And I'm like, are these people zombies? I mean, Bernie's up there after doing this for 45 years in the biggest crisis of, of his generation and our generations, of course. And, and it's like, what does he do? He's like yelling into a desert. Is, that, is this thing on? Is this thing on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's funny, like, maybe they're zombies in the sense that they're just like trudging along through life. I mean, I don't know. To my mind, they're just like very, very comfortable. They've got their jobs. They're surrounded by other people who also have their like perfectly cushy jobs. And like, that's where for me, it comes down to us as a movement. So socialists, the left socialist movement, the labor left, it comes down to, to those groups of people to organize and make them uncomfortable and that's not just through like organizing and electing people like AOC which again like we absolutely have to do but we also have to stay organized between elections and we have to I think wield the most important and most powerful tool that we have which is withholding our labor um and say you know if you're not gonna if you're not going to give us the relief that we need well guess what everything's gonna stop we're gonna make your life hell you're not gonna be comfortable anymore um, that's what we have to do. I mean, it's just, I, I was thinking this morning, it was like, so it seems like the second stimulus is going to be like $600 and then a $300 UI expansion. 
defensive. I mean, if the first one was crumbs, right? AOC called the first one crumbs. What is this? A single crumb, one crumb. That's what that's what we're getting. So we have to organize ourselves and fight against that. And and yeah, we have to do it quickly. That's right? so. I- I'm so happy you mentioned labor and, and, and Director Beckles, you know, you've been a big part of the labor movement as well. I, I, I want to go overseas for a second where there have been massive strikes, general strikes. Uh, I was blown away by this story and, and there is a labor aspect to this. Um, so <laughs> Paris City Hall, Paris, France, uh, received fines recently for appointing too many women to senior roles. Anne Hidalgo, uh, the, the mayor of Paris and member of the Socialist Party, celebrated the fines, I love it, saying the management of City Hall has all of a sudden become far too feminist. But I think what's missing from that line about feminism is there is an intrinsic connection between these feminists and the labor <laughs> leaders. So it's not just that there are too many women, it's like, what type of women are there? That's right. Go for it, Javanka. That's exactly right. That's the point. Because it isn't just about women. And it isn't about race. None, none of these, none of these fights, right? Because you can, you can, you have black Republicans, uh, you, you know, you have women who are, you know, who are, are against abortion and women's right to choose. So it isn't just about any woman. It's about the right woman, the right woman in the right places. So that's why, you know, I feel you can never have too many women who are progressive, who are, you know, listening to, uh, to the needs of the, the population. So I'm pumped. I love that she, she was happy that she has to pay a fine because men, men don't trip when, when it's the other way around, right? So the, the hypocrisy to me is stunning. You know, when you have uh, women who make up 51% of the population, uh, but we, we, we don't have 51% of the power, that's a problem, right? So it's not about the number, it's about the power. If you have uh, uh, 90% uh, women in, in any office and in, in, you know, in any department, but you still only have 10% of the power. That's, that's not parity. So I'm, I'm really pumped about the fact that uh, she's like, she's excited to pay the fine. And uh, because it brings up the com, you know, it brings up this conversation about what parity uh, really is. And, and it's not even about the numbers. So I, I love it. I love when she talked about, um, because, you know, reading the article, she was talking, she, you know, she faulted, she was faulted because 11 um, uh, of the women, there were 11 women and only, you know, five men that were named to, to this position. Um, it's, it's, it's really pretty preposterous. I know uh, in the AC Transit Board, four out of uh, seven uh, of the directors are women. And I, I love that we are rising up as women and recognizing the need for us to have equal parity, true, um, you know, true parity um, in, in these positions. And plus, when you have the right woman in the positions, we'll then start to be able to see uh, these changes, you know, changes in policies around the planet, uh, around our, our rights, you know, to, um, to regulate our own bodies. Uh, so I was like, oh, she, she's truly a bad bad uh sister <laughs> well you know what's so crazy about this is uh, the, damn. <laughs> the fine aspect was just i mean just there's so much symbology there like what you're fine okay it's right. bad enough that obviously women don't earn nearly anywhere uh, as much as men and of course women of color indigenous women uh immigrants but they're also on the front lines of the pandemic and like what could be more freaking out of touch 
than mm-hmm. putting the fines on, on, on women in the midst of a pandemic, any fines, frankly, um, right. in the midst of a pandemic. So, I mean, Marianella, <laughs> what's your response? I mean, I just- it's just ridiculous. So I thought two things as I was like yeah. learning about this today. One is like, what an insane example of like following the letter, but not the spirit of the law. Like I'm sure that rule was made so to prevent more than 60% of the body to be men, right? Like that, I'm sure that's why the rule was put in place. So, I mean, come on. But the second thing I thought, right, was this thing of like, well, it's not, it doesn't mean that it's automatically more feminist just because there are more women. And I think, you know, right now here at home, we're seeing that with the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, right? We're like, I would much prefer a Supreme Court with nine pro-abortion men (laughs) than nine Amy Coney Barretts just because she's a woman, right? Um, So, you know, I, I just think it's like, a perfect kind of example of like, of, yeah, again, like just following the, the letter of the law instead of the spirit. And, and I think it, it speaks to how much work we have to do, you know, as women on the left to like help, help each other understand that it's not just about women in positions of power. It's about people who are, who will stand up for gender liberation in positions of power. Okay, I want to close out on this last thing. Um, just like when I saw this article, I I was uh, so saddened, saddened. But this is in the New York Times, published saying that uh, letters from children to Santa Claus highlight the ways in which American children are affected by the stress, scarcity, and austerity of the pandemic in the United States. Children are literally instead of writing for toys or what traditionally you'd say that children write Santa Claus for. Um, it's more of a reflection of, do we have food? Do we have a home? Uh, please, you know, make sure my parents are, are not stressed. I mean, this is, this is such a metaphor for kind of American society and frankly, capitalism, because it's also Christmas. So there's so many different layers here. Um, I kind of want to end on this note because often art is, is a reflection of a moment in society, but art has been uh, completely wrecked. And, and, and I mean, there's been a wrecking ball to independent art movements and, and cities where artists used to be able to thrive. And of course, you know, Hollywood and, and the music industry are, are very capitalistic. So it's kind of strange right now because I feel like folks aren't, they're not, it's, it's like mainstream society and media. And of course our politicians are like in a different ether. Like they're not seeing and feeling what's happening. And I think this was just kind of a little snippet of, it's, it's not artistic, but it's a, a moment where you kind of, you get it in a deeper way. And I don't know how a, a, an elected official can read that story and walk away not understanding what's happening. Director Beckles. Yeah, I don't understand how any elected official could read that story um, and, and not take any kind of, you know, take any kind of action, especially if you're in that position to be able to take action you know, like let's start with, you know, a stimulus package um, that isn't insulting, $600, you know, it's like $600, here you go. And uh, don't spend it all in one place. When most, you know, that $600 is pretty much how much people spend on groceries. If you're a family of four, you know, my, my son and his family, he's a family of five. And I, you know, they spend almost, you know, $1,000 on 
groceries, you know, their household is a total of about six, you know, so can you imagine, you know, just how insulting it, it is um, to, to, to read this, the, hear this, this, this um, about how children are handling it, you know, I, I don't know if you all are aware, um, but, you know, I work in, in mental health field, I work with children and I, children uh, in the mental health field, and uh, so I'm seeing this stuff close uh, up and close up close and personal um and it is sad because children even if let's say that the, the parents um put on a happy face you know all the time even if they did their very best to to not have these the kids kind of see what's going on and, and even if the children didn't even watch the news children pick up on energy right they pick up on vibrations and so the the vibration that's in the world right now is sadness it's scarcity, it's, um, you know, it's, it's almost a feeling of hopelessness. And for children to, to feel this, it really, <clears throat> it breaks my heart um, knowing that, you know, kids are, are thinking about, you know, Santa bringing them food, Santa, uh, you know, bringing them money to, to pay their rent. Um, but I was heartened because I don't want the show to end on a Sad, depressing. No, Numiki. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of the it's like, right Oh my now. gosh. So what I am heartened by is the fact <laughs> that, you know, the postal service, you know, yes. they have that, that uh, operation Santa program where people get a chance to read the letters right, and right. donate some of the items, you know, uh, to these children and their letters. And, and, uh, and it seems that people have really stepped up this year. And, and uh, according to the, the postal service uh, that, uh, every single letter this year um, was picked up and children got these donations. So that feels so good to know. So then I start to feel, and I hope that just, you know, this kind of energy can just, you know, be a wave that children can feel that, yeah, there is hope in the world. There is goodness in the world. There is way more. There's so much uh, to share. There is enough to share. Um, and that that's the vibe that, that kids pick up uh, this season. It's 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 almost a form of mutual aid um, at this yeah. point, but really yeah. we shouldn't have to rely on that. Exactly. Uh, our government. Wakey wakey, Marianella, what's your take? Yeah, on? you know, I think I was, I was thinking that it's just such a sad kind of symptom. I think of how much um, has fallen on the backs of just regular people. I mean, parents yeah. right now are have to be everything, right? They have to be parents. They have to be homemakers. They have to be teachers often um they have to you know do their job if they're lucky enough to still have a job they have to do all of that um and of course they have to be parents um and so they're under incredible amounts of stress and obviously you know their children are suffering as, as we're seeing you know evidenced in in these letters and i think it again it just speaks to how much um our government has left so many people in a in a frankly really unacceptable lurch um, but I do think it speaks, to, like, I think our conversation here also speaks to, like, how deep I think the belief is that, like, children deserve to, like, have Christmas and, like, have uh, moments of, like, joy and happiness and, like, love in their lives that are, like, completely unfiltered and, like, not cut through by any other thing. And I think that is really, really powerful. And that is, I think, for me every day when I wake up and I, like, and I, I get energy to fight. That is what keeps me going is 
the deep belief that everyone deserves that. Um, and I, I hope that it can be something that can keep all of us going. Heck yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I mean, well, I guess we'll just have to see how, if at any point there is any movement on this, even at the local level, we're going to have to see after the new year, unfortunately, because we're going into the holiday season and it's just going to get worse, especially with the pandemic uh, worsening and government's response, you know, who knows how soon the pandemic um, vaccines or are going to come Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Lack thereof. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I have a, <laughs> I have an itch in my throat. I'm like trying to get through it. I'm like, Marianella DeFriel. Um, Marianella, thank you for joining us. Javanka Beckles, Director Beckles. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to everybody uh, for Fem Friday. I have no more water left. <laughs> that's why I haven't been able, <laughs> but I'm going to do my shout outs real quick. Um, Thank you for joining this this great panel. Have have a wonderful holiday season if we don't see you. And you feel feel free to leave. Uh, we're just going to go through some shout outs at the end of the show. Uh, special special love to Antonio Hobson. Thanks for joining. I love to hear strong women speaking truth to power. Love you three. Jesus just became a patron. Thank you, Jesus. You too can become a patron. Go to patreoncom slash show. Join our book club. Our first book is of course Professor Harvey K's Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. It was called, well, let me wait. Oh, this is must read for today's aspiring democratic rebels and radicals. That's Katrina Vandenhuvel from The Nation who said that. That's going to be our first book. And if you are an early book club member, you will receive that book for free. Woohoo. So do that ASAP. Uh, Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska says, I wonder how much indigenous activism preserving the environment has saved farmers downstream from native land. Exactly. We need more class analysis out there. That would be a fascinating. Uh, I mean, I wonder if there's research on that. There's a lot of missing research. Um, I've been reading quite a bit on on just America's history of colonialism. I've probably gone through like five or six books in the last two months. And it's shocking to see how little has been, uh, how little money and how little, how little energy has been spent studying indigenous populations uh, in this country. Not a surprise, obviously. Uh, thank you to, to Professor Harvey Kay for mixing it up in the chat. Special thank you to Midi Doctors for working the algorithms and huge, huge, huge thanks to Bob and Orb for keeping the room chat free. Thanks for your patience this week. I know I was out one day. I was sick and for some technical issues today, you guys are the best. This is how these, sh this is, this is what makes a show. I mean, MSNBC has these moments too. So, you know, we're just like MSNBC, except not. All right. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend. We will see you on Tuesday. Be well, be healthy, uh, and we'll see you then.